Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Manik Suri. He's the CEO and founder of Therma, T-H-E-R-M-A. So we're going to talk about Therma's mission and what it does and uh, Manik's background and everything. So thank you for coming, Manik. How are you doing? I'm great, Rich. Pleasure to be here. If you would, let's start with uh, Therma. What's the premise of the company? We're trying to bring attention to and build technology around uh, one of the areas in the economy that I think people spend very little time thinking about, which is refrigeration. We're trying to build clean cooling, and that's really uh, turning refrigeration into a more effective, efficient, and intelligent asset. Sounds a little bit unsexy, probably because it is, but we think that refrigeration is a critical area of infrastructure that is often ignored in, in technology circles. It's been around for 100 plus years, and it, it, it wastes a lot of resources between product spoilage, equipment failure, and energy consumed. Refrigeration is one of these areas that has run largely the same way for decades. 
We're trying to make refrigeration more intelligent using IoT sensors and data tools and ultimately turning refrigerators into batteries and turn them into energy resources that can turn on and off dynamically. Mm -hmm. What does that mean with this extra instrumentation? What does a current, let's say, refrigerated truck look like versus uh, your conception of one? What's different? Sure. Well, we focus mostly on stationary, uh, so not not as much on trucks, trains, and ships. We work mostly with uh, commercial stationary refrigeration, about 90 million of those in the world. Most of these devices are essentially the same they've been since 1950. You purchase them, you plug them in the wall, you set a set point, uh, and you let it go until it breaks or it fails. And the refrigeration kind of works at a static level the whole time. What we're trying to do is, you know, add a number of areas of intelligence. First, we're trying to monitor these assets continuously using wireless cloud-connected sensors. Uh, That's something that historically wasn't possible. Very hard to get signal out of the inside of refrigeration wirelessly. And so uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth couldn't push signal out. We're using long-range radio to get signal out of the inside of refrigeration continuously. That lets you see when refrigeration is not performing well, it lets you catch downtime and catch spoilage events early and often. So across what, 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 one quick question, why, why is it hard to get, why can't you just use wires? Is that, does that compromise the, uh, the insulation of a refrigerated unit? You can use wires. There are a few folks that have put wired sensors into refrigeration. The challenge with wiring is it's both intensive and expensive. It takes technicians uh, hours to drill into the side of refrigeration, and it takes you know quite a bit of capital. It costs five or ten k every time you want to do that. So it's extremely expensive to do for typical refrigeration owner operators. You don't have that much inventory to justify drilling lines in through the side and running an Ethernet cable. And so the vast majority of refrigeration is unmonitored today. You know, ninety plus percent of the uh, almost hundred million refrigerators in the commercial world don't have wired monitoring. We're using oh, wow. a place wireless sensor that, that's essentially um, extremely low cost. We don't charge for hardware or installation. It's a drop-in-place 10-minute install, and it's a pure software subscription that you pay. Um, so what happens in a typical refrigerator where you – does it evenly distribute the cooling? Like, I know when you first – I guess I would guess whenever you put something into a fridge or freezer, the thermal mass of that item would temporarily, like, locally create a warmer spot until the rest of the fridge, you know, cools it down, but – how much variability do you see in fridges? Yeah, uh, there is some variability in fridges. That's typically a bigger issue when you get to distribution centers and cold storage warehouses. And we do work with those folks as well. We have customers that have 10,000 to million square foot facilities. In those spaces, you've got huge amounts of inventory moving in and out. And you know you have to get the heat distribution right. And if you don't, you might be overspending thousands or tens of thousands of dollars per week on cooling. So it's really expensive to get that wrong, that heat distribution. The bigger issue, though, Rich, is that most times small boxes of refrigeration, you know, the typical walk-in or display case or low boy, they have failure rates due to human error, uh, equipment failure or grid issues, you know, electricity issues. And so you end up having equipment go down. And when that equipment goes down, you end up losing a lot of inventory. You lose service time. In some cases, you lose equipment. You lose the, 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 the asset. You actually have to replace it. And we're trying to catch and prevent those events, particularly when they happen when no one's there, which is unfortunately a lot of the time, you know, nights and weekends, mm. boxes are lightly staffed. So we think of this as alarm for inventory and equipment. That's um, when the- these fridges fail, how do they fail? What's the predominant ways? Yeah, a couple of different things happen. I mean, one is um, you've got, you know, just baseline equipment failures. You've got compressors that go down, uh, coolant that leaks, wiring issues, you know, door jams that are loose you know, all kinds of equipment mechanical issues that happen over time. And these assets have a 15 to 20 year life. So you get, you know, a decent amount of equipment failure 
across you know enough locations. The second is that you have a grid, you know, brownouts and blackouts, uh, electricity getting cut or electricity getting temporarily turned down. Those cause uh, spoilage events and cause a fair bit of what they call shrink or inventory loss. And the third, and by far the most common, is human error. People unplugging refrigeration for cleaning or defrosting cycles for getting to plug it back in. Folks, um, you know, going through and leaving doors open for hours when they're doing inventory for getting to close the door or latch the, the lock and burning shelf life and burning thousands in inventory. So those are the kinds of events that, that happen across, you know, many, many locations and have been accepted as kind of standard for decades. We work with companies up and down the supply chain, you know, whether it's uh, cold storage warehouse players or food distributors like UNFI or Now Foods or, you know, food service and hospitality players. You know, customers include folks like McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, 7-Eleven, Marriott, Hilton, and Wyndham operators. These are folks that have a lot of refrigeration across a lot of locations and have historically never had any real-time visibility. And so they end up losing equipment and losing especially inventory because of these, you know, these types of failure events. Uh, so that's the first thing. Yeah. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. I'm here in Texas and, you know, just in my house when it's very humid, the condensate line on our AC tends to get clogged and then the whole house humidifies and the AC doesn't work and then the line can freeze, you know, when conditions change. So I don't know if that affects commercial units, but, you know, in humid places or that have a lot of variability, you know, with season, I would think that'd be important. It's definitely important when um, you've got weather events and you're absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of uh, concern in markets that get really hot or really cold, especially uh, when you've got weather and, and you know, storm systems. So California, Texas, uh, Florida's of the world, you know, those kinds of geographies are, are big for us. Uh, but we're deployed in every state. You know, we're deployed in 11 countries. Uh, we've got customers all over. So there's there's issues and and. Um, you know, equipment failure happens all the time, you know, everywhere, sadly. And what we're trying to do, and you asked kind of where, where we're, you know, what refrigeration looks like today. The second thing we started doing is turning refrigeration on and off dynamically. So using smart plugs and controllers, we're actually starting to turn refrigeration up and down and on and off dynamically, meaning we can do it when energy prices change or when utilization varies. Uh, that's historically not been done either. Like no one ever powered refrigeration remotely and uh, had data science applied to it. So it wasn't being turned up and down, for example, when energy prices might spike. It's being run at a constant baseline. And so we're turning it into an intelligent load. Sometimes I describe it as, you know, we're trying to build a version of a nest for commercial refrigeration. Well, also too, I know that um, items will tend to dry out. You know, water will come, like let's say you have ice cream, you know, you get freezer burned ice cream. So I would think if these units fail or have too much cycling in terms of temperature or humidity, that some of the products could be compromised, you know, some sensitive ones. So I don't know if you have humidity controls, but as the stuff in the freezer dries out, 
you know, over time being refrigerated for, let's say, a week or more or a month, you know, what do you do to, to make sure that that stuff doesn't spoil the real uh, delicate type stuff? Well, I think that's right on point. If you don't have real-time visibility into what's going on around the product, you're going to have all kinds of quality and, and ultimately safety issues with the product. You can have, you know, product that looks bad, tastes bad, um, or worse, gets people sick. We're able to use our sensors to monitor temperature around product continuously. And so when we're thinking about turning assets on and off dynamically, we're constantly using the temperature readings as part of the determination of when and how long. We're not typically turning things off for very long. We're doing this for 15, 30-minute bursts. And those bursts are timed to um, utilization and to energy price and grid need or, or grid stress in the electricity and energy side. And so by timing those warm-up or turn-off events to when the energy markets need the power or when um, the location is utilizing the asset less, for example, you know, in an off window or when things are closed or uh, you know, when energy is, is really expensive, we can move power and move use around from an expensive time of day to a cheaper time of day or from a time of high use to a time of low use. But the sensors are key. That's actually how we ensure temperature around the product the whole time. Well, also, if I have a freezer with you know three different products and one of them likes to be colder than the others or is less tolerant to temperature swings, with instrumentation, I would guess you could find advantageous parts of the freezer to put certain things. Like let's say if you need to shut off a freezer for 15 minutes, what parts of the freezer heat up the most, the fastest, and you might want to relocate stuff in the freezer to the parts that stay the coldest for certain sensitive products. You know? Definitely. I feel like you've been talking to our data science team. Uh, we've identified about 92 variables that could affect when and how long refrigeration should be turned on and off. Some of them have to do with what's inside the fridge. You know, As you were saying earlier, Rich, some stuff is more shelf-stable, other stuff is more perishable. So you've got to be thinking about what's inside the fridge. You also have to think about things like what kind of operation is it? Is it a quick service restaurant, you know, that's busy, you know, 5 to 9 a.m., 11 to 2 and 5 to 9 p.m., like a McDonald's or a Taco Bell? Or is it a late night shop, you know, that's busy, say, uh, midnight to 6 a.m., like a Denny's? You know, it, does the product mix typically include a lot of deep frozen, uh, you know, stuff that can be buffered for, for hours? Or is it highly unstable, you know, lettuce and berries? So knowing things that, you know, that have to do with the operation, the location, and the product mix, and of course, the, the operator owner uh, you know, uh, sensitivity, all matter. You also have to know energy price, zip code, time of year, weather events, et cetera. And so we're collecting a lot of that data today, some of it internally, some of it through third parties, and using that to power our algorithms. Yeah, the reason why I know about this is I've always been hot my whole life. And I love <laughs> in the summer to go into like a beer freezer in, like a, in a convenience store and just stand there for 10 minutes and go, ah. So I, I guess I thought about all these things because I, you know, like I said, I get hot easily. That's funny. I'm, I'm, I think as a kid, I used to go and just park myself in, in the, you know, I grew up in the central Valley in California in an ag town called Fresno, where it got to a hundred, 105 in the summer. And um, I would go into the supermarket and just stand in front of the, uh, you know, those open refrigeration cases where the air is just blasting for like half an hour after tennis practice. That was kind of my, my cool down because my dad didn't like to run the AC too high in our house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are the, um, what are the resultant KPIs that you found are most important? And, you know, what are you going for? Are you going for energy efficiency? Are you going to minimize loss of product? Like what, what do you see these retailers are most interested in? 
Yeah, we typically, um, you know, we find that our customers, you know, we have over a thousand customers. Uh, some are small businesses, some are midsize, a few are national brands. Uh, we find that there are three different drivers, value drivers that people get excited about. One is food waste, actually catching spoilage and loss events early and often. That's measurable. There's a dollar value associated, and it's also got you know uh, climate impact around it. So we we often measure you know one ROI driver around the number of spoilage events that we catch. The second is typically equipment lifecycle and being able to predict when equipment's going to go down which is something we can do. And in many cases with the temperature data, we can see patterns that suggest the piece of equipment's got a problem with the compressor or the coolant, and we can trigger early repair and maintenance. That has a couple of benefits. One, it's a lot cheaper than a last minute, last mile repair, which costs a lot you know, for service and also disrupts the, the operations and you lose a bunch of revenue and have upset customers and staff. And the third and maybe most powerful is uh, energy costs. We're actually starting to measure energy cost reduction on a month-to-month basis. And we're driving energy cost reduction in the form of bill savings. So those are the three, food waste prevented, equipment failure prevented, and energy uh, costs being being driven down. Okay. What about um, segmenting the freezer? Like if I have, again, I'm just making this up, three kinds of products. The one that's the most temperature sensitive, I take out and put in the most often. And the one that's not, it only comes in and out, I don't know, once a week. Can I segment my freezer into different zones, maybe with, you know, plastic um, and divert more of the cooling resources to certain parts of the freezer that products that don't come out often could use versus other products that are near the door that move a lot? It's a really interesting idea. We have not done it as yet. We are exploring it with a couple of different organizations right now. You know, there's a, we have a number of customers in the K through 12 education vertical. So we work with over 600 schools across the country. Turns out that schools are actually closed for several months of the year, as most people know, summer holidays and winter holidays, unlike a McDonald's or a Taco Bell. Well, we were talking to some of our school uh, operators, some of the customers that, that work in the food service or cafeteria section about what can we do in the off months? Does it make sense to keep refrigeration running at baseline when no one's there, you know, when school's out? And so one of the ideas we've been discussing is segmenting the product mix into a small number of refrigeration units for the summer and letting those run, but turning everything else warmer or off uh, to save on the energy bill. Because you know running things at full blast when no one's there across every unit doesn't really make sense. So I think it's a great idea and something that we might get into at a more granular level. We haven't done it yet. Yeah, um, we are seeing opportunities to do you know this kind of granular you know, moving around of inventory and possibly making recommendations in verticals like education, where we have a bunch of customers, for example, you know, K through 12 schools that are closed in the summer months and in winter holidays. Uh, We haven't done it yet, but we think that that's an area where we might be able to create savings uh, by advising customers on where to store food and how to segment it to get the most efficiency. Yeah. And I was also thinking, what about staged freezers? So if I know for the day, I'm going to take out these products, if I put them into like an anti-freezer or pre-freezer, where maybe it's not as cold and there's just like refrigeration temperatures instead of freezing temperatures. That way I don't have to go into the main refrigerator 10 times that day and again, introduce thermal mass or my body heat. And then same thing when you get objects off a truck before you put them in the main freezer, what if you pre-cool them a little bit so that the main big freezer doesn't get compromised with the thermal mass of the hot incoming stuff, but relatively hot. I think that's, spot on. And right now we're not doing a lot of granular work around moving inventory between 
refrigeration units or across refrigeration you know, environments, whether it's primary or secondary. But we do think there's opportunity to do that. You know, most businesses don't do a lot of, you know, asset or, you know, uh, inventory uh, management at the per piece of equipment level. They certainly don't do it in an automated way. So we see opportunities in industries, for example, that have a lot of cyclicality, a lot of seasonality, like uh, hospitality or catering. You might have primary equipment and secondary equipment. You don't necessarily need to keep all of your inventory in, you know, both the primary and the secondary equipment. If you have a low season or a low season week, it might make sense to move that product to just the primary and turn off the secondary for a while and save money uh, instead of having things spread out. And that's something we're seeing, for example, in large format hotels where they have, you know, a hundred pieces of refrigeration across the property. And, and it doesn't make sense to have everything running across primary and secondary when, you know, in the low season, when, when people aren't visiting and the, and the rooms aren't full. Yeah, it makes sense. What, what, I know every situation is different, but ballpark, what do you think of the possible energy savings, cost savings, food spoilage reduction, et cetera? Yeah, you mean in terms of dollar, you know, kind of what kind of dollar values are we thinking about? Yeah, either dollar val- values or percentages, you know, whatever kicked out you think is important. Like, what do you, what do you think is possible? You know, again, I know every situation is different. But... Yeah, well, we're, you know, we're seeing some of that data across our, our customer base, but obviously it's early. We're only a couple of years old. We've got, you know, a little over 10,000 sensors deployed. So it's, it's fairly early stage in terms of what, you know, you know, what we think we can do and where we think the platform can go. Right now, we're generating on average across our customer base in the range of four to $8,000 of savings a year. That's coming from a combination of product inventory loss prevention and equipment asset failure prevention. So those are the two areas that our sensor product is creating value. That's food waste and equipment downtime. So four to $8,000 a year is what we're seeing. On the energy solution, the energy solution is actually a second product we offer, energy optimization. There we're seeing 10 to 20% energy reduction, energy bill savings, energy cost reduction on a month-to-month basis. So 10 to 20%. And the reason I use a percent is it really depends on the environment in terms of the kind of company and the kind of vertical, um, as opposed to a dollar value. It has much more to do with the, the size of the box. No, that's very significant. That's excellent. The the, uh, the instrumentation, the sensors, you know, since they're electronic, how much heat are they putting into the freezer? You know, it's you know, it's the old joke: if you put a refrigerator and you leave it open in your house, will the whole room get cold? No, it'll get warmer. You know, um, <laughs> but you know, with all these instruments poking into the the freezing unit, do they generate significant heat themselves, or do you have like you know only the probe pushed in? The rest of it's on the outside of the freezer and it has a little fan so that it doesn't contribute additional heat. Yeah, well, uh, love the question. It hasn't come up, actually. I haven't really been asked that, and I don't think our, our, our sales team gets asked that very often. Uh, our sensors are wireless and drop-in-place, and you know, I'll speak not as an engineer, but as a layperson, generate almost no heat. You know, small piece of circuitry inside takes you know, temperature and humidity readings you know, at, a, at a frequency depending on the customer preference between every 10 minutes and every 30 minutes. So there's almost no heat coming off the sensors. They're about the size of half a deck of cards. So a couple inches by a couple inches. Our controls product is external. It's not inside the fridge or freezer environment. It's sitting on the outside. So also not generating any heat signature inside the box and warming stuff up. Hmm. Okay. Makes sense. And then um, what have you noticed about freezer design? What, did, what do they appear to be designed to do well and not do well that you're addressing? Well, I think uh, what we've seen in terms of refrigeration, you know, equipment design is, you know, these are you know, equipment items and assets that have been around for, you know, decades. 
The companies that make them have been around for 50 to 80 years, generally speaking. These are pretty old line industries. Refrigeration is 130 years old as a, as a concept. Most of what they've been designed to do well is maintain you know, threshold values, you know, a lower bound and upper bound, fairly efficiently uh, over time. And to stay within you know, an upper and lower bound that's preset by you know, the operator. They do that pretty well. You know, we're now into like, I don't know, generation seven or, or nine or something of these assets. They've been built and re- refined over many decades. What they don't do well is one, they don't connect to the cloud in real time. It's hard to find a commercial refrigeration asset that's connected to the cloud. There's a few companies trying to do it on the residential consumer side, but um, even those aren't you know, particularly well-built consumer applications today. You know, they're not going to win many awards for uh, user experience and user design. But certainly commercial refrigeration is not connected to the cloud. And that means you're not getting real-time data uh, in terms of what's going on inside. You have to physically go to the piece of equipment and check what's happening, which means you can't you know, remotely control or, or remotely manage. The second thing is that they don't have data science. So they're not learning, they're not taking patterns from other pieces of equipment around them or taking data outside like energy price or time of year or utilization and driving any changes. They're basically dumb. You know, they're run the way they're meant to be at the time that they're, you know, turned on and the set points are set and they do that really well. But that leaves a lot of value on the table. Do you have, um, I mean, do you put cameras in the fridge to see like events when people go in and out, maybe figure out something from there or... You know, what if you have a counter on the door, how many times it's open a day and the duration and the degree to which the door is opened? And then maybe you can calculate, hey, every time you open the door in this fridge, it, it wastes, uh, you know, $14 worth of, uh, of electricity. So therefore, if you can minimize the door opening events in the day, you'll save more. <laughs> Love it. I think we should we should have a conversation with our product team at some point and 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 get some of your insights, Rich. We're, we're exploring adding a light sensitivity meter, which are fairly low cost and easy to, to, to consider as an add-on. So we're not using cameras, but we are considering a light meter. The light meter basically, again, simple piece of electronics, tiny. What it would allow us to do is catch opening and closing alongside the temperature curve. And to your point about knowing when the door is opened and, and for how long, the light meter would be a pretty good indication of that. So that's actually something we're thinking of doing as a way to catch false positives. For instance, you know, uh, temperature warming that has nothing to do with, but seems like it might have to do with equipment failure. If it turns out it's because the door was opened because someone was reaching in for a while or propped open because of an inventory delivery or cleaning, it'd be good to know that. So we can eliminate unnecessary alarm or unnecessary uh, warnings by catching that. And it would also help us think about things like efficiency in terms of are people using or opening stuff too long or too often relative to a baseline? You know, you know, is this being left open for two hours? For example, we discovered early on with one of our customers, every Friday at midnight or 1 a.m., they would have locations that would be showing temperatures rising for like two hours in their main walk-in, literally every Friday at the same time around midnight. And we were trying to figure out what was going on because the, the location wasn't really, it wasn't open at that time. Turns out they had a cleaning crew coming in and leaving the door open in the walk-in for like two hours while they did cleaning. And, and So it would be great to have like a light meter, for example, and, and what, that would be a way to kind of catch some of that. But camera, probably not. Yeah, also too, I guess you could outfit a fridge. If, if you know the location of certain products, you could outfit maybe a series of mini doors. You don't have to open a big one, walk in there and grab the product. 
you know, like um, I'm picturing if I go to like a 7-Eleven or one of those places, they still do have full doors. But I don't know if you could have little ones where, again, you could see certain products and just slide it open, grab it out and close it. And that would be a lot less energy loss versus opening a big door. Yeah, I think that would be interesting, especially if combined with, you know, an operating improvement or with, you know, some of the way that the, the store layout is done. I think that's where, you know, the next level might involve actually getting uh, deeper into like the operational map or the way in which inventory is spread across locations or across units within a location. We're currently not at that level of intervention. We're just at the let's give you data off of all of your equipment and, and, and let's help you catch issues and start optimizing. But I think there's a lot of room to, to optimize further, Rich. Yeah, it sounds really interesting what you're doing. Like I said, I'm, I'm personally interested in it because I'm always hot. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, sadly, I think more and more people are going to feel that because it's getting hotter year over year. And I live in, in Northern California. It's definitely hotter here than it's, it's been in a long time. We're going through heat waves right now. Well, so where can people learn more about Therma and about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, we'd love to connect with anyone who's interested. We're online at hellotherma.com. That's hello, T-H-E-R-M-A.com. You can reach out to me. I'm Monik, M-A-N-I-K, at hellotherma.com. That's Monik at hellotherma.com. We're on LinkedIn, you know, Twitter and and Instagram. So follow us for our latest updates. We're hiring. We have a dozen open roles and and, uh, always looking, uh, you know, for folks that are interested. Uh, We're based in the Bay Area and, and Excited to to chat with folks. And thanks so much for, for having me on, Rich. Yeah, it was a bone-chilling conversation. So thank you, Monique. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.